tonight's talk. It's called uh, Gratitude and Emptiness. This is, this is Gratitude. <coughs> it's written by Dogen, uh, 12th century Zen master. Being unstained is like meeting a person and not considering what he or she looks like. Also, it is like not wishing for more color or brightness when viewing the flowers or moon. Spring has the tone of spring, and autumn has the scene of autumn. There is no escaping it. So when you want spring or autumn to be different from what it is, notice that it can only be as it is. Or when you want to keep spring or autumn as it is, Reflect that it has no unchanging nature. This is also wisdom. When I consider gratitude from as as yogis receiving this lineage. I think about the lineage carriers uh, and and mostly stop at those I know of. So, for example, in expressing gratitude to Upandita, he'd always say, well, if you want to express gratitude to me, you should express it to my teacher. And that was uh, Mahasi Saidal. And if you're going to express gratitude to my teacher, you should express it to his teacher. And it went back to this uh, late 19th century teacher. His name was Narada. Uh, he became known as the, the Mingun Sairao in the Sagain, north of the Sagain Hills, in this area where we teach. It was this monk, young monk, who traveled alone the length and breadth of Burma, like in the early 1900s, motivated by wanting to understand what he had heard as liberation or realization. As with many of the cycles of Dhamma, there are ebbs and flows. And Unarada was, was at the end of one of the times where the Dhamma wasn't out as an alive spiritual practice. It was more cloistered and it was more in a theoretical stage in the monasteries and nunneries. Um, it was because of Unarada and then his student Mahasi and, and that generation of teachers in the early, mid-1900s that, that we have this Dhamma today. So Narada, he was motivated by this sutta, the great discourse on mindfulness, body, feelings, knowing mind, and, and dhammas. And he, he just felt that he needed some um, ignition, some spark to understand it. Uh, so he went in search of someone who knew, who understood it took him eventually to the Zagain Hills, across the Irrawaddy River from Mandalay, 
where these many hundreds of nunneries and monasteries are, and thousands of stupas, uh, where we've had our Metadana project and our annual fusion retreats for 15 years. And there, at the time when there were still a lot of forest and and um, tiger and wildness, there were many ascetics practicing in caves, nuns, monks, few lay people. And it was here that Narada found a particular ascetic who he recognized to be awakened, fully awakened. And he put to him, you know, how how do I find the path to this realization, this path of awakening? And the ascetic said simply, why are you looking outside? And Narada hesitated a moment, and then he realized that the ascetic was referring to the, the, the very frame or frames with which Unarada was looking for the path. Why are you looking outside of your own body? And why are you looking outside of your feelings? Why are you looking outside of your knowing mind? And why are you looking outside of your senses, the dhammas that appear? as light, as sound vibration, as aroma, as flavor, sensation, mental formation. So something clicked deeply, and he didn't go far away, Narada or U Narada, uh, and soon he, he became awakened. He realized that path. He went inside. He took his tension, turned it inward, uh, and let it develop for himself, deep knowing and understanding, liberating understanding. And that began this this uh, e- enormous resurgence, this sort of groundswell of the Dhamma reawakening. Uh, and then along with Mahasi Sayadaw and some of the others that you have heard us mention, like Tangpulu Sayadaw, and Weibu Sayada, Michelle mentioned last night, these awakened beings took it into the the um, worldly life of householders, of lay people. Uh, and then it began to spread back into places in Asia where it had been lost also for centuries, in Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Sri Lanka. It's like a, a, a cycle completed. Unarada's inspiration was founded on his gratefulness, his reflection that, well, somehow this lineage has come down over all these two and a half thousand years. And someone has taken the time to pass them along. He knew it had been an oral transmission and all the work it takes to, to memorize. Uh, and still today, when the nuns and monks study for their uh, various levels of Pali understanding up to Dhammacharya, some of the highest levels of understanding, they, they do it in the old style of chanting 
in the way that the teachings were initially memorized. And then a, a growth of practicing nuns and monks returned, you know, came out of the, the cloisters of the nunneries and monasteries. Uh, and, a, and a lay tradition began in Burma. From the, from the gratitude, we're inspired out of some initial confidence, some initial faith to take up the practice. You know, when, when we hear that people have spent their lives both practicing and memorizing the teachings and have done so for 2,500 years, that alone says that there's like there's something very precious something treasure like in in a spiritual search and that might cause us that might give us the initial faith confidence to listen to someone speak of dhamma or read a book you know or meet a nun or a monk somewhere many travelers in asia you know just sort of happen to stop by and and meet what eventually becomes their teachers. The other night, I, my Australian monk friend, Teja Damo, he was one of many like that. And the faith has a direct relationship to wisdom without a deepening and intuitive understanding, which was what is meant by wisdom. Um, the faith can just sort of circulate, just find sort of a cool, breezy place to be in our in our practice. But that fire for realization may not be continually fed. What feeds that faith is seeing for ourselves, knowing and understanding within ourselves, turning that attention into the elemental nature of the body, embed the awareness in the senses uh, and to understand from the inside. That deepens the faith. I was saying to a yogi today that one of Upandita's first poignant one-line teachings was that that all of all of Vipassana practice, or you could say all of spiritual awakening, or all of spiritual practice, is the awakening and sustaining or nurturing of faith. I didn't understand it at the time, but I came to recognize it as as the sustaining force that uh, leads to the, the faith becoming affirmed or confirmed and becoming the, the confidence that leads us onward and its direct relationship to wisdom. It's wisdom, it's our own understanding that confirms that initial tender faith and grows it or leans it toward unshakability. The deeper the understanding or the more the realization, the more the more unshakable and, until that faith is completely unshakable. Uh, it's like having total trust in this Dhamma process. And it's not something 
we do. It's something we hear and something we invite and something that emerges and like a vessel uh, carries us, continues to carry us on the way. And that faith also it has a relationship with intuitive understanding or wisdom, but it also initiates the desire or energy to practice Virya, the word for courageous energy or effort, is like a wholesome, healthy, powerful desire, a pure desire. In the, in the Pali, there's many words for desire, and not all desire is like entangling, the entanglement of, of craving and attachment. So, uh, there are many desires motivated by metta and karuna uh, and by various kinds of dhamma that connect us and keep us on the path. So it's this courageous energy then that uh, along with faith we can feel a lot of gratitude for that fortifies, that nurtures our practice. Even to pull back sometimes takes courage. You know, when we think we should push forward and uh, go into some difficult karmic knot that we feel, that we experience in the heart, in the body. Um, sometimes it, it takes a combination of humility and courage to know it's time to pull back, it's time to rest, or change the focus to something else. You know, Not to build up this papancha mind, this obsessing mind that we've got to fix this or get rid of that and so forth. We're learning to use the, um, the, the vehicle of this body to understand the nature of phenomena. As we, as we awaken to the elemental nature of this body, as vibrations and pressure, uh, heat, coolness, tension, relaxation. When we feel it as this field of changing phenomena, we start to enter into these first and very transformative insights. Michelle was talking last night, uh, anicca, impermanence. That's often the door opening entry into a, a lifelong practice, uh, a way of making our life, our, our practice, not just retreat time. We learn that meditation isn't something that just happens in our head. You know, that it's, in, it's to be embodied and to be expressed in everything we do. So, so seeing the anicca nature of phenomena, you know, beginning with the body, already already starts the, um, the process of disidentifying. And Michelle was saying last night, all the ways that we sort of pack this 
this conceptual sense of ourself, the I-making machine, the me-making machine, that this is mine, making machine. Uh, and it's the vipassana, vipassana that begins to to unpack that intense, uh, intertwined set of, th- of thoughts and thinking patterns that, that self-references our experience, beginning with the body, beginning with the elemental nature. So until we know or can hear the language that the elements are telling us, singing to us, teaching us, we'll easily formulate and fix a sense of identification that this is my body, this is I, this is me, this is mine. You know, my eye, and, and I see that, this whole ob- objectifying process. My ear, and I hear that sound. Uh, the whole Papancha myth-making story. As we start to feel the elemental nature and, and see how quickly phenomena is changing, awareness touches tightness, and suddenly the tightness disappears and we feel a patch of vibration. Awareness goes to that patch of vibration, that disappears. And the next thing that comes into awareness is heat. And we go to that heat, you know, in the beginning it might feel like in different areas of the body, but as the samadhi deepens and this insight into impermanence begins, a sense of form falls away. So the, the area in the body starts to disappear. We might have a sense that it's down there, out there somewhere, but can't really place it. You know, and at times the whole form of body, breath, gives way, and it's only this play of sensations that are happening. What is there to identify with then? You know, in in those moments of just seeing changing vibrations and pressure and heat and fluidity and hardness and softness, is there, can we find an I? Are those mine? You know, that kind of careful, intuitive, inner witnessing is essential to sort of dismantling that, these papancha, eye-making kinds of thoughts. And the elemental nature uh, can actually be our path to full awakening. In many of the Buddhist discourses, you can take a, a, a single domain of awareness, just the body. You can do the same with the feeling tone. It's more subtle, but you can do the same by just watching the knowing mind. And certainly the sixth sense door awareness, as we attune more, being one with the senses and thus one with the environment, and subject-object disappears, in here or out there disappears. That kind of awareness leads to the kind of knowledge that uh, totally transforms our, our perception, our misperception. Generally, the conditioning around perception, because it has to do with memory, you know, perception like feeling tone, arises in every moment of experience. So we perceive something, uh, and without that spacious moment of awareness that's catching the percep- perceiving process, 
it's going to proliferate into thoughts about what we're seeing, thoughts about what we're hearing, and so forth. And it it will end up in some formulation of of craving or conceit, as Michelle was talking about last night, or this fixation, this sort of self-referencing of what it is we see or what it is we hear or what we feel in the body, what we the emotions that we have. Uh, innately, in that uh, in that identification package, moment to moment, there is some form of craving, you know. Craving to have or craving to get rid of or craving for security or craving for uh, um, identification. Some kind of wanting. And it's not the kind of desire like courageous energy that leads to awakening or is, is um, underlying motivation is compassion or metta, which can be very powerful expressions of desire, the kind of craving that, that the Buddha spoke of is this insatiable craving. And as long as there is a, this, this fiction of an I or a me or a mine, it's held together by this insati- insatiable craving. It's called tanha. It feeds, on, it feeds on itself. It feeds on wanting more. So there's never a sense of satisfaction in the Buddhist um, cosmology, um, there's realms of beings, like light beings, called devas or celestial beings, and also realms of beings that are in thicker, darker realms than the human. Uh, and one of those is called the uh, peta realm, and they're described as these these beings that have huge balloon-like bodies and pinhole mouths. So they, they never get enough. The entry of their mouth is so small they can never get enough to feel nurtured. It's, a, it's the realm of, you know, these, uh, these petas, hungry ghosts, they're called, hungry ghosts. So to make sense of it, psychologically, of all these realms... You know, because we can all relate to those moments or experiences where we feel like we don't have a body, and just that lightness and joy and tingling of a deva. We can also experience these thicker, darker, you know, more compressed and dense worlds where we do feel like we're just always hungry and thirsty. We're not getting enough, or it's this mentality of, of poverty. So, just to understand that, it's craving hides impermanence. The intensity of wanting, you know, which is part of the machine of this eye-making, identifying with these elements of body, or identifying with what we see and hear and think and feel, the, the, what holds these I, I, this eye-making or my, or me, or mine together, uh, is this craving, whether it's a strong intense craving or just just the subtle craving you know f- uh, for more more sense of security more sense of self more sense of I'm here like that um, it's the force of craving that hides our ability to see impermanence and, and therefore the reverse is true it's our 
it's insight awareness in, into anicca, into a permanence, impermanence, that where craving falls away. Those moments where we feel this total contentment. There's no want. It's like you, can, you might feel that you're fed on joy or just fed on ease, on stillness, on calm, on balanced mind. The Buddha said about the bojangas, the seven awakening factors, that they're like a river following gravity, and they just naturally incline and flow to the ocean. And then so too, the, the seven factors are meant to incline and cause us to flow to awakening, the ocean of awakening. That's like a natural law. It's like it's like gravity. So the craving and the eye-making machine is sort of like anti-gravity. It's going against natural law. It's not natural. You know, and to think it's something that we have to extract from our core beings is, is another papancha mind, another misperception. Like understanding the, our core being as being that luminous, brightly shining heart, mind, using the bronze bowl as an example. And our practice of, the, of mindfulness and the other factors of awakening energizing or calming as being the cleansing cloth that removes the tarnish, that lets that shine come through, that allows those moments of insight. We start to see impermanence. It's like Michelle's movies, you know, the frame by frame. It's the speed of each frame that makes it seem solid and continuous. Or like, you know, my log that was a snake it was actually just ants. Just the perception of that solidity, of that permanence. That's what the eye-making machine or identification process does. It, it sees what... It looks at what's true and sees the opposite. It looks at things like the body, elemental nature, that are changing, but sees or tries with its craving to make it permanent can't understand change. Craving, uh, a craving self seen through the lens of craving won't ever see change. And as Michelle was talking last night about the power of conceit in this eye-making identification machine, uh, and that's our capacity of, of comparing, just another way of sort of a kind of insecurity gives us a temporary moment of security. I'm better than, I'm worse than, or I'm the same. You know, and it's not just conceptual. Just think of how much we compare, how, how we spend our lives comparing the stories that we have. I mean, we try and sit down and have a good, you know, easy, relaxed, laid-back, insightful sitting, Watch all these wonders we talk about, you know. Okay, let's see the body not be a body. Let's see it just be this stream of elemental nature. And we you know, wait for the sounds that are pure sound vibration. And that's what they're telling us to do. Okay, so we try. 
we hear a sound, and then you know we have a thought. Oh, okay, that's a sound vibration. Uh, but I wonder if that's that owl that hoots every day, you know, around two o'clock. That's pretty cool. Okay, that's what it's what's going. I'm just thinking now. That's right. And what was I doing? Oh, listening to sound. Oh, the sound is already gone. What shall I do now? I guess I'll come back to the body and be with an anchor. Well, what is an anchor anyway? You know. <laughs> Let me feel the sensations for a few moments, and then the mind will go off. And well, am I getting this? You know, am I doing it right? Michelle was talking about conceit. Okay, let's see. Do I compare? You know, and yeah, I, sometimes I compare. What am I? What, you know, am I am I usually worse than or better than? What feels good? Let's see. If I think I'm better than everyone, how does that feel? You know, and then. Well, it's kind of hard to sustain feeling better, feeling superior all the time, and I don't quite believe it. It kind of feels like a fake. Maybe I'll look at feeling worse than everyone, you know? And we're just, we're not actually experiencing feeling superior, feeling inferior. We're just thinking about it. So not even in touch with the experience of it. And then we just give up, give in to, uh, why bother? I'll just be equal, you know? Just be equal. So we never get the sensation of conceit until we see more deeply the nature of impermanence. Everything's changing. Nothing's the same. Nothing's the same. And that deepening insight leads us to a direct experiencing of dukkha. Dukkha, dukkha. Dukkha is different kinds of dukkha. There's dukkha, dukkha. <laughs> dukkha, dukkha is just like having headaches or um, pain in the body uh, or difficult emotions. Just kind of common discomfort, anxiety. That's kind of dukkha, dukkha. And then there's the dukkha associated with change. And that might be even we're feeling good, feeling pleasure, but behind that pleasant experience is a fear it's going to change. Like I really surrender and let go in, in a massage until around 10 minutes before I start realizing it's going to be over. And then it's really hard to stay completely open and surrendered because I don't want it to end. That, that would be this Anicca Dukkha, you know, this, the dukkha that comes from knowing of imminent change, even when you're experiencing pleasure or joy. And then a most profound dukkha called sankara dukkha. Sankara is a word meaning, like dhammas, that means everything, just things, all things. Physical elements in the body, physical elements in the universe, on the planet, sights, sounds, emotions, mental states, all that is, are, is sankharas. So, dukkha sankara is the sense that because of change, you know, because it's, the change is happening like so momentarily. This morning we were talking about the kind of insight, that kind of insight awareness that as soon as it's touching an experience, it disappears. It's, it's hardly ever even touching a sensation or a thought or a mental state or a sound, and it's gone already. You know, that's, that's when practice hits an, 
one of the insight stages, the stillness becomes palpable. The form, as we know it, falls away. You know, it's not like space and time are just conceptual. They fall away. It's like at the end of a sitting. Maybe in the early part of the retreat, we think, well, maybe it's 15 steps to get to the door or 15 seconds. And now it's, it's not. It's just moments of experience. It might take, and can at some retreats, it might take an hour to stand up and move, move to the door, just depending on how you're being mindful of standing up and then standing and how slow you're moving. It's like it becomes mythological space. There is no time. Time is completely conceptual, and so is space. It's just moments of experience is all that's real. Of course, we have and use and need conceptual reality. But it's really important, as Michelle was saying last night, to discern the difference, to have the wisdom that knows the difference. We even use concepts quite skillfully in meditation practice, sometimes as mental labels that help lift the energy, and help that healthy non-attachment to be with a sensation or an emotion without being you know, identified or drowning in it. Um, and um, um, sometimes to break a, a spell, like we don't realize that this sort of like mythic spell or, or we're under some total fantasy and we don't really see it. It's like uh, it's like a, a curse that was cast on a princess in, in Western mythology, you know. Until the, the the princess comes along and kisses her, she's she's in a slumber or in another world or another form. And so sometimes naming the name of whatever it might be, grief, sorrow, longing, suddenly breaks that spell. And, and mindfulness comes in rather than an identification. So, so that, that's a skillful use of thought, of concept. We want to make really clear, be really clear about that. Thoughts are of vital importance in awakening. But like the Buddha said, thoughts in the thinking mind are, are conceptual. They're not real. They're met as designators. They can point to experience. They can help us it can help clarify how to practice, how to use the Eightfold Path as a vehicle for liberation, and help us understand and be able to think about and speak about what's skillful speech or unskillful speech, what kind of speech and thoughts harm ourselves and what, or harm others and so forth. From the inside of impermanence and and dukkha, we see what happens when the identifying with what changes um, causes increases that sense. One of those kinds of dukkha, the the anguish, or disturbance, or anxiety of immediate discomfort, just like dukkha dukkha, or you know how we if we don't understand um, the the dukkha of impermanence, the dukkha of change, will keep pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. You know, so that's a kind of dukkha that we get stuck and identified with. And likewise, 
that deepest of all dukkha is that everything we touch with awareness, that all experience is like the water dropping all away from the waterfall, from the lip of the waterfall. It's like in the beginning, our awareness is sort of there feeling arising experience or maybe primarily noticing arising experience. And then we feel the arising experience like the, the gravity of the river. And right there where it's about to drop, and we, we hover with our awareness like a mist right there at the lip. And then at other times, it drops away so fast, it's frightening. We call this a, a dhamma fright, however, a dhamma fear. It's not a fear born of ill will or hatred or, you know, ill will. It's just, it's a, it's what happens when that whole eye-making machine, the ego, it's, it's, we begin to see through it, starts to become transparent. Well, what do we hold on to? So here's where we understand when Michelle was talking about conceit last night, the comparing mind, it's the dukkha insight that dispels that conceit. And how can we compare better, worse, or the same with that kind of, with, with that sort of nature, with seeing that level of dukkha? The phenomena, it's the degree of impermanence is, is so imminent and so present and so continuous. Right now it's all falling away. There's nothing to compare. Like it's seen impermanence, how can we cling? How can there be craving to what's changing? So the, as our insight into impermanence deepens, our attachments loosen. And again, a deep insight into impermanence and our attachments loosen. And likewise, when we see and feel and understand dukkha from within the sensation of dukkha in any of its for formations, the comparing mind drops away, just by nature. Don't even have to think about it. And anatta is the sort of direct opposition of the the fuel of the eye-making machine. When we see anatta, when we see that phenomena is so impermanent and so uncontrollable, how can there be an identification with it? You know, where is there room to, to fix a sense of ourself in, in changing heat and vibrations and pressure and motion, tension, and so forth? Where in these changing, you know, emotions, when they're not the story, when they're just felt as a, these impactful physical, mental uh, motives, you know, emotive energies, just pure joy or pure grief or pure clarity or pure confusion, just as it is, there's no place to identify. And, and, and that's, this insight into anatta is what dismantles or unpacks this very powerful machinery of of identification, I-making, or mine, or myself. The Buddha offered us a very careful, mindful, sort of analytical, mindful approach to checking out very carefully in the body 
is 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 this mine? Is this I? Is this self? Is this me? As we watch and feel the sensations. You can do that with the whole body or take a part of the body or or wash awareness through the body, pausing, feeling a sensation, heat, tension, hardness, vibration. Or simply, uh, in one of the commentaries, you can just say who or whose as an alternate. And, and likewise, when there's a flush of thoughts, fantasy, story, wondering mind, a particularly strong cluster of emotions, whose, or just ask, taking the time, is this me? Is it mine? Is it I? Especially when we're really mindful and they are changing. You know, we, we poise our awareness. It's like, it's like when we ask, where is awareness? What is it no- noticing? It, it, it may easily, at that moment, attune to some degree of changing nature, of impermanence. This, uh, this great Thai monk, he was, he didn't write anything. In fact, after he passed away, it was just people's memory of his teachings. But a, a little volume came out late last year called um, Things He Left Behind. And in it, there's a story of, well, he was, um, he had just met with the king and queen of Thailand, and then he was taking rest in, while he was visiting in a, temp, in, a, in a temple in Bangkok. And while he was taking rest, another monk, sort of known for his meditation skill, came in and started describing you know, all these sort of interesting states of mind that come out of concentration meditation, like these blissful and jhanic absorptions and, you know, uh, cosmic consciousness type of experience. Uh, And uh, as we've been trying to have us all discern the difference between just pure concentration practice for the purpose of tranquility and serenity and peace, but it also can lead to... very absorbed, even in psychic states, versus the Vipassana, which is all about just being in, in gritty touch with things as they are, just the body as it really is, the emotions as they really are, and in the way they're happening, which is just in this moment, appearing and disappearing. The Buddha's instructions and like his gifts of the seven bojangas, all of that is like trying to get steer our awareness toward these insights and beginning to see the arising, passing nature of everything that's very liberating. So this monk was you know, sort of identified with his meditative accomplishments and he asked uh, Luangpu, um, the monk I'm referring to, 
Gifts He Left Behind was the name of the compilation. He asked him what he thought about it. And Long Pu said, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I think about it. And he said, have you ever heard of, and he gives this long Pali word, Hasiptu uh, Patpada? And the monk said, no. And he says, well, it, it means the mind that spontaneously opens and smiles of its own nature without any intention to smile. The mind that just sort of spontaneously opens and smiles of its own accord, its own nature, without any intention to smile. Gratitude and, and teachers and their way of being and the way and their style of teaching what they leave behind, the gifts they leave behind. There's lots of ways to to come about, you know, unpacking this identification. Uh, lots of ways of understanding um, anicca, dukkha, anatta. It's all the same insight. Impermanence just opens the door a deeper feeling, insight into impermanence. We understand the instability, you know, the insecurity of dukkha, the, the potential always, the potential anguish that's always there in life from change, and understanding impermanence even more. You know, where do we build this? I, what do we make mine? Which thoughts, which sounds, which sensations? You know, and then what happens is this: we start feeling this dhamma, just like that dhamma fear when everything we see, everything disappearing suddenly. It's kind of a healthy fear. We come around afterwards. At first, we want to back off and we want to cling to something, and that's where having spiritual friends or guides or teachers is saying it's okay, you know. Uh, it's, it's a fear that helps us actually let go more and, and see more and give them enough confidence you know, to restore. They want to, often at the first time we experience that, we want to run away. And likewise, um, to, to have a, the guidance to take us through uh, other areas of Difficulty where our habit is to identify and and be a good spiritual friend, mentor, and and show us this man who lived with Michelle and I and our daughter, and when he was eighty-seven years old, and his name was Paul Reps, and he, he referred to himself as Reps. He authored about 20 different books, including Zen, uh, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. He edited that, and then many other ones about meditation, and also his art, which was sumie, brush paint, like calligraphy, and then little statements underneath them he'd make. 
So he lived with us one year, and and he was just this constant. I don't know what he was. Just like this wise man, child, jester, um, challenger, uh, affirmer, kind of all in once. You never knew what to expect from reps. He referred to himself as reps. And like when he arrived at our house, he just had this day pack with a pair of shorts, a pair of pants, a couple of shirts, and, and then, and then a, a beach chair. Folding beach chair. He was huh? He was no, he was 87. He was 87. And this is in the early 80s. And he walked in. And we were, I was taking him through the kitchen to show him his studio where he was going to st- stay. And the first thing he did in our house, he's walked up to the refrigerator and he stood in front of the refrigerator and said, There's the enemy. <laughs> And we learned early on not to ask him what he meant. <laughs> and it could have been in those days, you know, the freon gases were still in there. Could have been not really organic or fresh food, or from the time we had ice boxes, we didn't share. Who knows what he meant? But there was the enemy. And Chandra, who was eight years old, came running up to us once and said, you know, reps came up to me with these papaya rinds and avocado rinds. Those were his main two food and intakes, papaya and avocado, and asked me, what what do I do with these? And Chandra said, well, you, you can put them in the compost. And reps said, what compost? Where's the compost? Chandra said, in, in the backyard, in the corner. There are no corners. <laughs> she learned not to ask what he meant. <laughs> and so I had just come back from from Burma, and I was asked to have classes, meditation classes. So I had Thursday classes, and he had Sunday classes. Um. And he said, "Well, you should advertise." I said, "I don't, I don't know. I don't want to. Adver- I don't know how to advertise. I don't want to advertise." He says, we said, well, "I can't even see the the number for your house, you know. So at least write it on the on the telephone pole." <laughs> so he handed me some paint, you know, and a big paintbrush, and and I put three eighty, and I don't write very well. So a big three and a really tiny eight and then an O with a line through it. It was hard to say if it was an O or an eight. But he loved that. You know, it was like his sumier. It was like to him it was like calligraphy. Three eighty. And then he made me get a five by seven card and and, and say, do you want to know your mind? And I'd write that. Do you want to Know your body. I had to write that. Thursdays, five thirty. Sundays, five thirty. Right here, with an arrow pointing into my house. He he was he was he was an ex, an expression of continually 
dropping identification was being anything at all. You know, he first thing he said to me is, "You're not Upandita. <laughs> you know, you're not Mr. Burmese Master. You're from Hawaii. You know." And and he'd pull out over the year. He sort of started to pull out my own stride, my own way of saying things, so I wouldn't be Mr. Burmese Buddhist, right? Or Mr. Upandita or anything. When he was young, in the early 1920s, and living in Japan uh, before the war, he he made these he made his living by doing the calligraphy, uh, and then he'd hang them on clothespins on a clothesline, and turn a fan on them on the streets of Tokyo, and then there's a sign there, for sale, living art. <laughs> for rich people, one hundred dollars. For poor people, free. <laughs> and then there was the time he walked to the grocery store, determined to defeat the voice machine when you put fruit or vegetables on those weight things. Back in the eighties, for a while there was this digital voice. You know, five ounces. $3.20. And he hated that voice machine. And he tried to get the the counter clerk to just guess the weight. <laughs> you know, or turn off the voice, the digital, digital voice machine. And he was so fed up, you know, he went one time and crossed the street, which he said every time he crossed the street, it was like saving his own life. Because <laughs> of the... V- fierce traffic. And he went in, he got his good, which was one grape. <laughs> and he put it he put it on the scale. <laughs> the, the, the clerk lo- loved him after that. <laughs> Gratitude to our teachers. One of Mahasi's students was expressing his gratitude for um, Mahasi's teachings on being mindful at the sense doors and Mahasi's home village of Segun in Upper Burma. He said, you know, he loved to come and meditate down in the Rangoon Center uh, and in the early periods of meditation. It was such a relief for him to get there because he said he had a really hard time. He, he lived with his he lived with his family, including his father-in-law, who was always berating him, always insulting him constantly. Nothing he could do was, was good. Nothing was right. Everything was wrong. So he'd just be exhausted, you know. Just be constant, just be really weary of it. And so he learned in meditation that you know, all phenomena are impermanent, and and it's just wearying to identify with it. It's wearying to self-reference all experience, whether it's sensations or memories or thoughts or emotions. That all of it is just again and again and again and again. And at some point, 
that weariness turns into this sort of wise disenchantment with the show. It's like, you know, Michelle's movies again. You turn around and see the projector, and it's just a moment-to-moment affair, frame after frame after frame, and it's not really there. And so this, this yogi, Mahasi yogi, got a real insight into it and realized there's a, there's a difference between physical phenomena and, and reaction to it or mental phenomena or sense-door phenomena. So he went home. And he had a wonderful experience, and then he came back to Mahasi's later, and he said, you know, this time I went home and it was really great, because my father-in-law didn't change. He kept insulting and berating me. But at this point, because of my understanding of the sense-door contact, and ear, sound vibration, and hearing, I was only mindful of hearing. I was not mindful of any insult. So there was no reaction whatsoever. It was just hearing. Every time my father-in-law spoke, I was just aware, hearing, 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 hearing. Every time he berated me, hearing, 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 hearing. And I was happy. <laughs> and he got, he got more upset with me. <laughs> I wasn't bothered at all. The equanimous vision of experience from within. This is this is where our practice is taking us. This stream that, by nature, by natural law, by gravity, uh, leads to the ocean. All these forces of awakening are our vehicle. They're our flow. They're the stream that take us, incline the mind and heart uh, to awakening. Uh, so that so that gradually, even while not yet fully liberated, fully awake, we have this vast equanimous vision of how phenomena simply arise and pass, you know, and have kind of seen it enough enough and again and again with a, a kind of weariness where we just stop identifying with phenomena because it just takes too much energy. Just thinking, the wandering thinking mind, it costs so much energy. And it's so conserving just to start being with things as they are, pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. It's just kind of things as they are. So this is gratitude. Being unstained is like meeting a person and not considering what he or she looks like. Also, it is like not wishing for more color or brightness when viewing the flowers or moon. Spring has the tone of spring, and autumn has the scene of autumn. There is no escaping it. So when you want spring or autumn to be different from what it is, notice that it can only be as it is. And when you want to keep spring or autumn as it is, reflect that it has no unchanging nature. And that's anatta, emptiness, the wisdom of no self, just things as they are. Let's sit.
Why would we ever need to look outside of the elements, elemental nature of body? Why would we ever need to look outside of the momentary nature of feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? Why do we need to look outside of the stream of knowing mind, moment to moment? And why would we ever need to look outside of the flavors and scents and imagery and sound vibrations just as they are? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.